Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Represented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. He has been one of my favorite sports writers for a long time, and he's pulled off something that is very hard to be successful at. He was one of the best sports columnists in America, and still is, really, and he did it gently. No one's allowed to do that job gently. I don't even know, who did you ravage with hatred and bile just filled with cruelty? You were not critical at all as a sports columnist. What kind of human being are you doing that job <laughs> that gently? That's Joe Posnanski's laughter. You can hear him on the podcast with Mike Schur. It's a really fun listen. And I admire both those guys for a number of reasons. One of them, Mike Schur makes the good place and parks and rec and he's on the office. And as a side project, he decides to write a book on how to be perfect, how to go through all of uh, history's philosophers and teach you how to be a good person. And Joe also writes the difficult and expansive stuff, and he's got a bestseller now, another bestseller, the Baseball 100, which isn't really a list of the 100 best players of all time. It's also just a story about humans and America, and it's written with great, great touch. But as we welcome you in here, Joe, and thank you for making the time for us, because you guys should check out the podcast with Joe Posnanski and Mike Schur as part of the Levitard and Friends Network. It has the feel of our show, and I recommend it very highly. But of all your books the baseball 100 the soul of baseball the the life and afterlife of harry houdini paterno the secret of golf with jack nicholas and tom watson the machine about the big red machine is it possible for you to tell me which one was your favorite wow um yeah okay it's pretty easy actually i mean i would definitely say the soul of baseball my first book was my favorite just because it was uh, me traveling around the country with Buck O'Neill. And, uh, you know, Buck had asked me to write a book about the Negro Leagues. So it was a, uh, a labor for him as a, as a great friend. And uh, it was the time of my life. And and then, you know, it, it also took on a whole other meaning because he actually died just before it came out. So it was suddenly not only this incredible labor of love, but also this this thing where I was trying to, uh, you know, keep the legacy alive of of Buck O'Neill, and and so I'll never write a book that means more to me than that one. I mean, that's that's my most special and most important book by far to me. Baseball One Hundred was really really fun though. I mean, this one was because it's so because it's exactly the kind of book that if you and I were having dinner, you would tell me you're insane. This is the stupidest idea that's ever been for you to do this. This is a complete waste of your time. And I feel like I turned what is sort of a pretty basic idea, counting down the 100 greatest players ever, into something that I hope and, and believe is something bigger. And, and it's uh, 
it's this history of baseball. It's a little bit of a history of America. It's it's a story of all of these people. So I, I really do love that book. I should probably point out to the audience, and I may be betraying someone here, so please tell me if I have, and I will not apologize for it, and I will continue the betrayal. But uh, they are paid a great deal of money to do this exceptional podcast, uh, podcast for Metal Ark Media, and they've donated the entire thing to the Negro Leagues Museum because of how personal that story is to you. Why is it so personal to you? Part of it's Kansas City, but it's a lot more yes. than that, right? It is a lot more. I mean, of, of course, being a, a lifelong baseball fan uh, has, is certainly a part of it. I, for me personally, and, and you know, I, for Mike, I know it's something a little bit more. But for me personally, it really starts with Buck O'Neill. I, I mean, just when you have an opportunity to become friends with, you know, really the best person I've ever known, you know, somebody who who has endured, who endured so much in his life and yet maintained this incredible joy for life, this incredible optimism. I mean, to, to have gone through what he went through and to still be hopeful about people, uh, it's, it's, it's beyond my understanding, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's so beautiful. And, and you know, you, when you sit around and, and listen to stories uh, from Buck O'Neill about Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and, and on and on and on, it it really it really becomes something personal to you. So, you know, I was interested as a baseball fan for sure. Buck took it to me to a whole other level. Uh, Mike and I have talked about this a lot, and and I think a big thing for him. And you know, I think we're going to see some of uh, Mike's work uh, with the Negro League soon. Um, I, I think that it is such an incredible American story, right? It's it's the story of of these these players who were denied, denied, denied everything and yet found their own way endured horrible horrible you know segregation and racism to play this game that they loved and you know we we just don't get i mean you you guys do it as well as anybody talking about you know the it's it's a pretty cynical world out there and it's a pretty cynical sports world out there and so to to get at something so real as the negro leagues and, and these players who really did play because they they not just love the game but love being in front of people and love making their living doing it is uh, i think it's a, it's an amazing story when you say what he went through you've got details there that no one else has yeah well i mean for for you know for when it comes to bach because he never liked talking about all of the things he went through but denied the opportunity to go to high school in Sarasota, Florida, from the very start, denied that. Worked in a in the celery fields with his father, you know, and and always tells the story of the reason that he went into uh, you know tried baseball is he he was out in the celery fields and it was a brutally hot Florida day, and he just looked up at the sky and said, "Damn, there's got to be something better than this." And his father, who had always been very you know passive about you know what to tell him to do said there is something but you have to go out and find it and and he left sarasota went to play ball certainly was good enough to play in the major leagues uh that opportunity wasn't there played for the kansas city monarchs became an iconic figure became the manager of that team became a major league scout was certainly more than qualified to be a major league manager never got that opportunity was the first African-American coach in baseball history, uh, Major League Baseball history. But again, really more of a token than anything else, which he'd be the first to tell you 
endured extraordinary racism, tells stories. He used to tell stories in a funny way about coming across the Klan. I mean, this is this was Buck. Just it was constant. And then at the very end of his life, um, he was supposed to go into the Hall of Fame. And this is such a such a small thing for his life. But but it was so clear he was going to go into the Hall of Fame. They they were they had a special panel put together to put in as many Negro League uh, players, managers, people as they wanted. Buck was the clear headline. He was the guy in everybody's you know newspaper uh, lead. You know Buck O'Neill expected to go in the Hall of Fame today. They deny him. They don't vote him in. And I was there in the room with him when it happened. And you know he he took it as as he did everything. He just he just looked at me and he said, "Well, that's the way the cookie crumbles." And then uh, as Bob Kendrick, who is president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum now, went downstairs to set up the press conference. Um, he looked at me and he said, you know, because they inducted 17 people, not Buck, but 17 people long gone uh, into the Hall of Fame that day. And uh, he looked at me and he said, I wonder who's going to speak on behalf of the 17. And I said, but I don't care, Buck. I, it doesn't. I mean, I was very angry at the time. Uh, and you talked about me not taking people out uh, on Collins, but I did that day. I could I could assure you. And uh and I said, I don't care. I mean, you know, what What does it matter? And he said, I wonder if they'll ask me. And I said, really, you would do that? And he looked at me and he said, son, what has my life been about? And that's what his life was about, was was telling the story of those who had been forgotten. It, they, those 17 are in the Hall of Fame right now because of Buck O'Neill. And, you know, it's the tiniest thing because we all were amazed at the way he endured that that snub and of course for him it's like what is this snub compared to not getting to go to high school not getting to go to college not getting to play in the major leagues uh, the names the that, that i've endured the places that turn me away when serve me what is this but yet at the other hand on in a very very small way it just showed his ability to rise above and that was that was buck o'neill how do you receive me calling you a gentle sports columnist I, I hope it's true. I, I always felt like I wanted to be, I didn't want, here's what I never wanted to be, Dan. You know this. I never wanted to take cheap shots, ever. I felt like if I ever came hard at people, which I did uh, at times, it was, it had doubled the oomph in it because I never, I rarely did it. And if I said, this guy is brutal and should be fired. This guy is, you know, is, is, has embarrassed the sport and should be thrown out or whatever the case may be. Um, I think it had a little bit of extra uh, power, but yeah, I always saw sports as it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be inspirational and it's supposed to take us away from all those other things. And, and, you know, when you and I have been in a lot of places and a lot of situations at the Olympics, at the, the NFL and, Baseball, you know, look at the crazy baseball stuff now, and and where you have no choice, you, you, it's so wrong. You have to you have to call it out. But I always wanted to do that when the situation called for it, and I never wanted to make it personal, and I never wanted to take cheap shots of people. I just felt like that was, and and I that is not to knock people who have because some of those are very funny, and 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 some of that is is a big part of what sports. Uh, viewing and and listening and analyzing is, but that just was never my thing. Oh, but I always thought there's been such a coarsening here that I have thought throughout my career, I found it weird, and I'd be curious your perspective on this, 
for 20 years to keep arriving in places and being given permission to, I mean, it's different now, I suppose, because the culture has changed some, but to give permission to us at every turn, really, you're going to allow us to be the ones who have fun here with sports? Like that's not going to be a lane occupied by somebody else. Oh, you're, you're really going to think that this is going to be more authoritative if you give your opinion wearing a sports coat. Uh, I, I just, I've never gotten how it is. It's just puzzling to me as you, you still love sports. You love sports so much. You have loved sports. It must be so weird to you to have it treated with something that isn't gentle and fun because that's all it is for you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because you bring up the podcast, the, the, one of the original sort of themes of the podcast for Mike and I was that we were going to be the anti-ESPN angry fest, right? Like, like when when you see those guys on ESPN screaming about Aaron Rodgers or screaming, I mean, you know, back then it was Randy Moss or 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 you know, screaming about some baseball thing. We used to do a segment that we would call, um, you know, face off or something. I can't remember exactly what we called it, where one of us would would come up with some incredibly soft take, right? Like some, like, I think that, uh, you know, Randy Moss is a great receiver. And then the other one, yeah, I totally agree with you. And that would be it. That would be the whole, the whole face off. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's weird. Cause I mean, it's, I, I've always been aware. I mean, it's always out there. I mean, certainly I've been around talk radio and, and, and hard hitting, you know, people. And, you know, I, I think it's become, as you say, it's been coarsened for sure, but I always thought it opened up a lane for us, man. I mean, I always thought like, hey, you know what? I mean, it's funny, you know, I used to not to not to bring up names, but I used to work with Jason Whitlock at at the Kansas City Star. And we used to go to Chiefs games together. We used to go to some stuff together, you know, in all sports, but we'd every week go to Chiefs games. And we'd be there at the end and and you know, the game would be over and Jason and we would discuss what we we're going to do so we didn't overlap, which was never going to happen. <laughs> And Jason, <laughs> you and him overlapping, there would not be a <laughs> sentence of overlap. We were not going to overlap. Your no. entire well, careers, we your entire careers, there would never be one place where you two could overlap. No, we really didn't overlap. But we would always discuss it. And Jason would say something. I'd say, like, hey, Jason, what do you want to write? And he'd be like, ah, they got a fire Schottenheimer. I'm like, good, you get that. You get the fire Schottenheimer, and I've got the rest of the field. So for me, it like it always felt like, um, writing the way that I did and and thinking about sports the way that I did really just opened up all sorts of lanes for me. And, and uh, you know, and I, I still feel that way. How did you and Whitlock get along? I don't uh, want to disparage Whitlock. Uh, he is somebody who a whole lot of people don't agree with and don't right. like very much. Uh, but what have you made of the last 15 years of Whitlock? I haven't spoken to him in a very long time. Yeah, I have not. I honestly, to be perfectly honest, have not kept up with with Jason. You know, he's he's taken his shots at me, um, which is fine. Uh, we got along actually pretty well, you know, reasonably so when we were working together. I mean, there was you get along reasonably well with everybody, Joe. Who do you not get along reasonably well with? They're not that many. There are there are a few. I'm not going to name. I would love to hear who your sworn enemies are. <laughs> Let's, let's just say I haven't started any of the fights, but 
No, we we got along like I mean, there was a real professional chemistry between us because we were so different. And and so there was like a kind of a Jason and Joe show. And it was Jason first. I mean, it was a Jason slash Joe show uh, that people in Kansas City pretty much got a kick out of. Oh, you and, guys, you're you're I mean, you guys, it, Kansas City had no right to be one of the great sports sections in America. And it was unbelievable. Right. I mean, look at the names. I mean, look at the people. I mean, right. Thompson and, and Jeff Passan and and uh, I mean, you know, it, it just go down. Like every every time I look at at, you know, any kind of national thing, whether it's at SI or whether it's at ESPN or wherever it is, you know, wherever wherever we're allowed still to write, uh, you see all sorts of old Kansas City star writers. I mean, it's a it was an incredible collection of talent. And that's Mike Fannin, who was the sports editor there. He he put together this just unbelievable staff. Um, and it was headlined, you know, I mean, Jason was the was the big guy. He was there when I got there. So so it was like I say, we 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 definitely got along uh, enough when we were working together. I mean, he he maintains uh, some anger uh, that I don't, frankly. You've written about sports in all of your books, and they're not really about sports, as I say, but they are also through sports, except the life and afterlife of Harry Houdini. Why did you choose that one? I wanted to, I wanted to do something not in sports, and I had this idea that was sort of a sportsy idea about our loss of wonder in sports. And I was thinking about it through Babe Ruth and, and you know, what Babe Ruth would be now, you know, not how good he'd be or whatever. That's a whole other. He'd be LeBron. Topic. He'd be LeBron. We would, it, there, nobody would be allowed to be mythical guy in not even Jordan <laughs> or Jeter or any, or even Brady. Like you're, we, right. won't, we will not allow you. Although Brady, I think Brady might've pulled it off and added to his <laughs> list of accomplishments that he got through this era without us being able to tear him apart. Unreal. Yeah. But, you know, but Ruth was also like, uh, you know, he was a drunk and he was this. I mean, so so would he be LeBron or would he be like, you know, Terrell Owens or Randy Moss or somebody that, you know, I mean, I think I think he would have been torn down so much. And that's not to say that he shouldn't have been, but it is to say that he wasn't in his time. In his time, he was this larger than life figure, as were many of of those eras and we don't have that anymore and i just wanted to explore what it is what is why why we don't have wonder anymore and i wanted to do it outside of a sports thing so houdini was the perfect example to me like we still it's been a hundred years literally a hundred years since that guy was was you know at the end he almost died almost a hundred years ago uh, more than 100 years when he was in his prime and it was the same. But we still know him. We still, you know, talk about him. You, somebody makes a great play in football. There's still Houdini. I mean, what the heck is this guy still matter today? Why in the world do we still know even who he is? He was just a, an escape artist. And so I was super interested in that. And I wanted to just sort of feel like, yeah, let me see if I can do this. And and Avid Reader Press and Simon & Schuster they like agreed, which, you know, they didn't have to do. They could have been like, no, I, you're a sports writer. You ought to stick with sports. So they agreed and let me do it. And it was, Dan, it was a blast, man. I mean, one thing that I really, really love, and you know this about me, because we've talked about this going back many years, I'm still super curious and still super interested in trying things. Like I did not know a soul in magic, did not know a single person, had no connections nobody i knew knew anybody and it was like starting over 
And I was like, you know, I, it was, I write a baseball book. I'm writing a baseball book now. I, you know, I've got everybody right in, in my Rolodex. I can call anybody. I can, I can get meetings with anybody. I can get interviews with anybody, but here I'm like, Oh, how do I get David Copperfield on the phone? Right? Like, how do I get, like, I didn't know. And I had no way of doing it. And it was like old fashioned, just starting out reporting, man. It was so cool to just be able to like begin from the very beginning. And I love doing that. You are an extraordinary writer. You're an extraordinary thinker, but perhaps people don't know you're also an extraordinary reporter. So when you're going through the details of Harry Houdini's life, if the audience here has not read the book, give me the three things, the three stories, the three items. And I know this is hard because you've got a book filled with interesting stuff, but just the things that jump out that if you're trying to impress somebody, you're telling them you want to know what's interesting about Harry Houdini, you're probably wearing your friends out with these stories of, let me tell you this story about Harry Houdini. Yeah, there, well, there's so many. I mean, the two things I would say about the book, one is a story, and that is, that there is an escape from 1904 that we still don't know how he did it. Like that, like that there is like living mystery about an escape that Harry Houdini did in 19, yeah, more than 115, 118 years ago. Um, we still don't really know how he did it. And and people have studied it. Magicians have broken it down and there are all these different theories and there've been like actual like articles written about it, books written about it. And but nobody knows for sure how he did it. I love that there is like, like nothing like that could happen now, right? Nothing like this, I, one thing that amazes me and, and man, you and I, we're not that old, but yet when we first started covering sports, like something could happen and you wouldn't be able to see it, right? Like it would happen in a, in a, in a, a, a basketball game that, that wasn't on television. Uh, you wouldn't see it. You'd only hear about it. There were like this, this left, legendary things now every single thing that comes out is you know we have not only can we see it we can see it from a thousand different angles we can you know so so nothing can stay like mysterious like that so i love that the other thing about houdini is that every single thing about his life is a lie that like literally every word he wrote about himself every story he told about himself where he was born when he was born it's all a lie and and so you are in you're just in the funhouse when you're trying to figure out who the heck Harry Houdini was, uh, which was why it was so much fun. I mean, the, for me, getting to to hang out with all of these like truly obsessive Houdini fans and Houdini writers and and magicians. I mean, I went to I mentioned David Copperfield. I went to David Copperfield's uh, museum. He has a museum in uh, in Las Vegas that's private. He doesn't show it to anybody. And you walk in there, it's the most incredible, ridiculous thing you've ever seen. Um, and, you know, and I got to write about it because I invented this <laughs> wait, idea of writing about Harry Houdini. Wait a minute. though. Why is there a private museum that no one oh is allowed God. to see except for Joe Posnanski? I don't, I don't even like understand what you're talking about. special tours. But here's the fun part. Here, Let me tell you this. So you walk into this. It's It looks like a, a completely, it looks like a warehouse in Las Vegas. It doesn't look like anything. And you walk in the front door and you walk into essentially a men's clothing store. So there's this men's clothing store, but it's not a men's clothing store from today. It's a men's clothing store from like the 1970s. And it's essentially an exact duplicate of his father's men's clothing store. And, you know, you have the gold uh, cash register on the front and you've got all these ties and under glass and you've got it. I mean, it's a 
full-fledged clothing store all the way through, including a little black and white TV in the corner that always plays uh, the favorite show that he and his dad would watch. So you walk into this sort of weird place, <laughs> and then you, at this time, you pull a tie on, that's sitting on a mannequin, and the whole back door opens up, and you <laughs> enter this crazy <laughs> magic museum and it's like and every room is insane dan every room and it's you walk private into one room, this is crazy you walk into one room and it's wall-to-wall dummies from like ventriloquist dummies because that's how he started his career was as a ventriloquist so like but like legendary ventriloquist stuff it's worth millions of dollars just this ventriloquist but it's the creepiest, weirdest room you've it's ever the, been it's in. It's the haunt. And this is the most haunting thing I've ever heard described of any kind. I don't even understand. You pull a tie. It's private. At every point, there was sort of like, am I getting out of here? Is this place going to let me go? And he, took me, he took me to the back. There was like a, this crazy room in the back. This is, I, I love this. Um, and by the way, this is, it's priceless. I mean, it's like literally every Houdini uh, artifact, every artifact of every magician, it's all in here. So we go to the back and there's like this little closet and there's a safe, God knows what's in that safe. It's a huge giant safe and all this. And on the table, there's like a little gold statue. And this is, I mean, in the back room closet with this with this junky couch, I mean, nobody goes back there. And there was, there was this uh, gold, statue and i said oh what's that gold statue and his uh his producer says oh i don't know and he pulls it out and he goes oh it's an oscar it's an academy award in the middle of this back room and i'm like oh okay and he puts it back and he's like he gives it to me he's like feel how heavy the academy award is you know and i'm like okay and he puts it back and we start walking away i say hey wait a minute whose oscar was that why why is there an oscar in this closet and he's like i don't know and he goes back and he gets the oscar and he shows it to me it's the Oscar for directing for Casablanca. That was literally in this tiny. Oh my closet God! In the back of this insane. <laughs> it's it's one of the most insane things I've ever done. I mean, I don't. If you have any more insane than that, feel free to tell us all those <laughs> stories because I cannot believe what you just described. You ready? Showtime on May third. Summer starts with the Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. Ethics is the Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. Ethics is the Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, 
live only on Netflix. I would say that one of the most insane periods I've ever seen a sports writer have to go through, I can't imagine that there would be a lot more than this, than for you to be in the center of the life of Joe Paterno as you are writing a book about somebody who at the time would have been viewed as a pillar for authenticity in a way that was borderline sainthood, the way that he was viewed as a leader in America from a different time, and you were in the center of his life as his entire legacy, and I would imagine his identity got shredded, and I don't think it's a leap to say that everything that happened under his watch ultimately killed him, and you were in the center of all of that. You know, one week before the Sandusky indictment dropped, which obviously is when everything changed, right? Because it was inside that indictment, the presentation of the public indictment, that there was the first talk about uh, Joe Paterno being told something, right? So one week before that, first of all, he won the game that put him as made him the winningest coach in, in college football history. So that literally was one week before. Also one week before that was when people in Pennsylvania, a couple of senators in Pennsylvania, nominated him for the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which he almost certainly would have won. He almost certainly would have been given the Presidential Medal of Freedom in December of that year. And instead, in November of that year, literally his entire legacy came crashing down. And in the same week that his entire legacy came crashing down, uh, he found that he had uh, terminal cancer. I mean, it all happened all at once. So yeah, that was a weird place to be, you know, when you're there to do a, a, a you know, a full biography of, of somebody. And it was the first time I'd ever tried to do a full biography of anybody. I mean, it was the first, you know, it was the first book that I ever tried to write like that. Um, and, you know, you've done all of this research and, you know, and I knew some things that were coming and all of that, but, but I had no idea it was going to turn into what it turned into. And, and then suddenly, um, you're in the middle of of the craziest and and wildest and most personal story that that I think I've ever been around in sports, which was and by personal, I mean, every single person had a very, very, very strong opinion about the situation, whether it was, hey, you know, what do you want from the guy? He's just a football coach. You know, you, you, you can't blame him for what this other guy did to those that were you know, he was, he was, uh, what he did was every bit as bad or worse. I mean, you had all things, but nobody had like a neutral opinion on it. Uh, yeah, it was quite a place to be. What's the truth? Well, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I wrote whatever, 600 pages of what I hope and believe is the truth. You know, there, there are a couple of truths that I really believe that, that I can say. One is the truth that I believe that Joe Paterno stuck around for way too long. That 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 is separate from what happened, but also also a part of what happened. Um, he he couldn't let it go. He really couldn't let it go, and it was it was such a shame because there were so many opportunities in his life. If he in 1994, after you know he'd already won Sportsman of the Year and and national championships and all of this. That team went undefeated, and it was one of the great college football teams ever. Um, and he was 73 at the time, I think. Uh, what a time to walk away, right? What a time. 95, I guess. 
what a time to walk away. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. It's the perfect career. It's the perfect career. And, and, you know, you, you walk away and look, he's a football coach. He did all of the things that football coaches do. I'm not saying he was a saint or anything, but what we just saw with coach K would have been many multiples with, with Joe Paterno, you know, and, and, and the way that they love, but he, he wasn't even close to ready to walk away. And then in 99, he had another opportunity to walk away in, in, in perfect stead and he didn't. And then, the team went into a very bad place, you know? I mean, they they not only started losing, but, but you know, there were all sorts of arrests and, and issues with the club, with the team. And it, he, he refused to walk away. The president essentially asked him and told him to walk away. He, he bucked the president and, and, and insisted on coming back. And then in 2005, I guess, or six, uh, my dates are might be a little bit off, uh, they came back and they had this incredible comeback season and it was it was the story of stories and whatever. And again, he didn't walk away. So it was an obsession for him. And I don't know what the ending could have been. Obviously, the Sandusky thing is so tragic. It's a whole different thing. But I couldn't have been a good ending. It just it just wasn't going to be a good ending when you refuse. You know, he was injured. You remember, he broke his hip. He did all these other things. So that's the first thing is that is that at some point he lost sight of why he was doing this and what why it mattered and and you know the young Joe Paterno for for people who don't uh, know or don't you know want to believe it like he stood for things he really truly stood for things and and he did it through football but but it was it was a much larger mission for him and he lost that and it's very sad. As far as Sandusky goes, the problem is everybody failed. It was a failure of of the community. It was a failure of the police. It was a failure of of just everybody. Nobody succeeded. And and what I think has been lost in these kinds of things are people like Joe Pater- like uh, Jerry Sandusky. They're hard to find. I mean, they do things and they're very very good at keeping these secret lives. I mean. He hid behind this this charity, this second mile charity. So do I think Joe Paterno ever purposely defended or or tried to protect uh, Jerry Sandusky? No. Do I think that there were times that he could have stepped forward and done more? I think there a lot of people would be able to say, would have to say that, yes, the answer to that. So that's what I really believe. I I don't believe it was a sinister Joe Paterno. I really don't. And I know a lot of people do, but I really don't believe that. What do people get most wrong about that story most often? Well, I think one thing they do is they conflate what Jerry Sandusky did and what Joe Paterno did. You know, I mean, it's funny because I've heard from so many people who will, you know, say, oh, you know, Joe Paterno is just like Bill Cosby or just like, um, you know, who can list off a bunch of people. I'm like, well, he didn't commit the crimes. I mean, let's, you know, I'm not, I mean, he, what what he did is bad enough, but but at no point is anybody suggesting that Joe Paterno was involved in the crimes themselves. No, but people and want I, but people want leadership from a leader, and when you definitely. get in, when you get into a situation too, Joe, where the crime is this kind of evil, and people right. feel this kind of helpless in the face of the crime, they need to put the blame somewhere, and no a le- a leader is a good place to put it. Well, no. I don't disagree with that at all. Like I say, I mean, I, look, I sat down 
with Joe at the end of his life. And I didn't talk to Joe very often, by the way. I mean, I I had spoken to him a couple of times before the book, and then I spoke to him only a couple of times after the book, and then after the, the stuff went down, I only spoke to him a couple of times. But you were embedded in his life pretty good, though. But like I was very much embedded in his life. I mean, I was literally with his family and, and, and I mean, throughout, and and still love his family. I, they're, they're still, I, I feel terrible for them for what they've had to endure in all of this. But I sat down with Joe Paterno and he looked at me and he was very sick at this point. And he said, what do you think of all this? Like, that was literally what he said to me. He said, what do you think of all this? And I said, well, I, I think the way you've lived your life, people would expect more from you. Like, like you should have done more because of who you are. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect another football coach to necessarily do that. I mean, I, I think lots of football coaches would would do what they needed to do to protect the program or whatever the case may be, but not Joe Paterno, I mean, not the way he supposedly, uh, well, not supposedly, the way he did, the way he lived his life for a long time. Uh, and I did say that to him. I said, Joe, you know, I just, I just, I I never, I always thought that, that people, Basically, were willing. I think a lot, he had a lot of people who didn't like him when he start when this started, and they didn't want to give him the benefit of the doubt. They didn't want to give that that he was fooled like everybody else. They didn't want to, you know, see that that at times that he didn't really know what to do and he just did the wrong thing, but not with any malice or any you know failed intentions. But your point is one hundred percent right, and what I agree with. At some point, you're the leader. You're the one who runs everything. And you've got to rise to the occasion. He did not. What an uncomfortable question for a dying man to ask you in the middle of scandal. Yeah. Well, it was it was a very that was our most personal conversation. I mean, we've had we had a couple of conversations, one with him in the hospital. Um, but this was one where it was it was felt kind of clear that we might not talk again. I mean, he was definitely and. And I should say that he wanted, he never said anything to me except write the truth. And and I, I should say that. And not only that, he and his family gave me literally all of his files. They just, after, this was afterward, they said, hey, we, they didn't even go through them. They said, we know that, that, you know, find what you will. So, I mean, I found all sorts of stuff in those files, nothing Nothing that that uh, you know. I found in his files how much he hated Sandusky. I mean, that was that was very clearly in there. Um, so I never had that. But we, when we had that conversation, and it was very emotional. Um, at some point, I think he, I, I just, I just, you know, he, we were talking, and he was, he was going through it, and finally, he did say, "Well, what do you, what do you think of all this?" And and he wanted to know. And and I felt I had to tell him, um, you know, that I I didn't think he was a I didn't think he was the devil the way that so many did. I didn't think he was a terrible person at all. I think he was a human being who made mistakes. And but I think that that I think he didn't rise to the occasion. Are there lessons in Paterno, the story, the writing of the book? What are the lessons? What did you learn when you're writing a book like that? And you know, no matter what you write, you are going to get absolutely smashed from all directions. And I was getting smashed throughout the process. Um, you know, I've, I've said this before. I've written six books now. I've only had one reviewed by the New York Times, and that was Paterno. 
Uh, but the New York Times wrote three stories before Paterno ever came out about me that they did not talk to me about. You know, it's like hey, the as a writer, all you want is the New York Times to cover your 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 book. Uh, and and the only way the only way I've ever had that is when they were, you know, talking to other authors about how I was going to screw it up, I guess. You know, so for me, the big lesson was, how are you going to rise to the occasion? You know, and and the only way to answer that question is how you feel about this book, because there are no matter what you write, people are going to say you were an apologist for him or they're going to say you were way you were unfair to him, uh, which I hear to this day, both sides. Uh, people were going to say that you completely screwed it up. You had the opportunity and people were going to say you should never have written the book in the first place once you knew all this was going on. And once I'd made the decision, I'm writing this book, I'm going to write it as honestly as I know how to write it. I'm going to step up and write this. It was a daily, like I daily had to look in the mirror and say that to myself, that you need to write this book as honestly as, you know, as, and you, and just take what's coming. Just take what's coming after that, because I think it's a really important book. I, I, you know, I don't know. We're 10 years now past that. And maybe people can look at it in a different way now. But I think certainly in 10 more years, when people are looking back at this, I, I really believe that book will be the one that will tell the real story of, of what happened. And and uh, and I, I just took that responsibility really seriously. You have also told us that you're very proud of the finished work there. What represents success for you on a book? Well, that one was different than what represents success for me on other books, obviously. For that one, it was, it was can I look in the mirror and say I wrote an honest book? That was purely it. You know, when I wrote the, my first book, Soul of Baseball, it was, are you going to be able to capture the man that is Buck O'Neill? Are you going to be able to... To, to do it. So if somebody doesn't know Buck as, as a whole generation of people will don't doesn't now and won't in the future, and they pick up this book, will they will they get a piece of Buck O'Neill? And and so that was, you know, what I was trying to do there. There are other books, honestly, I just want to have fun. I, you know, when I wrote The Machine or the so or the Secret of Golf, I just want people to enjoy it and have fun with it. So it's a different, I have a different goal every time. I I mean I I imagine you do with with all of your work as well. It's like there's you you want to do your best work all the time, but but with that one, it was very vividly. Are you going to write an honest book? Are you and because there were so many opportunities not to. You know, it's so funny. All of these people are like, you know, you were an apologist for him from that side. You're an apologist for him. You, you how could you not write this 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 and this? And I'm like, well, because it wasn't true. But if I had written those things. I would have been a hero. The book would have sold, you know, better, I'm sure. And and I would have been able to go on all the talk shows and I would have been able to, you know, it just wasn't true. I wasn't going to write what wasn't true. And the same is true from the other side. I could have written a book that that completely exonerated him and and uh, they'd be selling it, at, you know, for to Penn State fans for for 100 years. But that wasn't true either. The truth was definitely in the middle. And as you know, that's where I live, you know. I mean, I really live in the shades of gray when I'm writing. I I want, I want nuance, and and to me, this was the hardest story to to to, to find nuance in. But it was there, and and uh, you know, humanity was there, and that's that's what was important to me. It couldn't be a critical success and a sell a lot of copies success without doing it with the extremes in it. With yeah. uh, without placating the noise, 
with you needed these kinds a biography of this thing like i don't know how many people understand you pouring yourself into biography is a life work of detail i don't know how many years you spent writing this book and reporting this book sure. but in taking the care to write a biography of, about a man when you're the reporter that you are and you're the caring person that you are this must have been a consumption of your life and i imagine some some consumption of your happiness as well. I don't know that you would have had to write a book that would have been a more miserable process than this. It wasn't the best process. I mean, in, in that way, it was the, it was incredibly challenging and it was incredibly rewarding to, to write a book that you're very proud of in those circumstances. Cause I think there, there were so many traps and so many pitfalls every day, every single day. And, and, to not fall into those, and I fell into some, I'm not going to say I was perfect, but to not fall into those and to come out and 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 write it is is incredibly rewarding, but it wasn't fun. The, the reason I wrote uh, my next book was, was uh, The Secret of Golf, and the reason I wanted to write The Secret of Golf, which is about Tom Watson and Jack Nicklaus and their friendship, I just wanted to have fun writing a book again, you know? I mean, it was the, the, it wasn't fun to write Paterno. How many, how many years did you pour into Paterno? How obsessive-compulsively were you Paterno-soaked for how long? Well, I would say every bit of three years, but the truth of the matter is it was two books, right? It was two process. I mean, obviously, there was the book before all the scandal happened, and there was the book not only after the scandal, but after him dying, which he died, you know, within within two months of of the scandal coming out, two and a half months. So, so you know, then then it's a speed rush to a whole other different kind of book that you're trying to get out and 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 do and and treat fairly, and and information is still coming out. So you know, it, those. I would say that leading up to the to the scandal, it was hard and it was, you know, as, as all books are, and I was living it. I moved to State College away from my family to 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 be there for, for his final season. And and it was difficult, but it was after the scandal in that nine, 10 month period that was um, yeah, I mean you 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 really truly live it every day. And you're living it every day with with noise everywhere and 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 people criticizing you left and right. And uh, it wasn't a blast. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the most fun thing I've ever done. I will tell the audience, though, if they want to blast and one of the most fun things he's ever done, they should check out the podcast as part of the Levitard and Friends Network. He and Mike Schur have an extraordinary chemistry and they can talk about just about anything in a way that feels uh, like it's nourishing you and making you laugh some. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for doing this. I also want to thank you, as Metalark Media has an initiative, a real mission to reach young people that we've covered, Babe Ruth, Joe Paterno, <laughs> Buck O'Neill, and a magic trick from 1904. Uh, yes. <laughs> Joe, yes. Joe. Yes. I, if we really want to get the kids, let's let's start talking about like Bobby Jones and old golf. Let's <laughs> that, that nothing the kids love more. Joe, I am happy for your success, and I'm telling the people listening to this, check out the podcast. It is much lighter, but you will find yourself enriched because they enjoy each other's company, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. 
Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV, copyright 2024, Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey, please drink responsibly.